You just have to keep reading to find out. But for now, that's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. I hope you continue to, uh, I hope you're continuing to read uh, through the Bible with us as we journey through from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, it is an exciting journey. I love the book of Deuteronomy because it really is a call to faithfulness. It's a call back into that covenant relationship that God has with His people. And it's summed up in the great Shema, as you saw in the video, in chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. How do we do that? How do we love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our might? Well, in the broadest sense, it all boils down to a life of worship that basically expresses itself in the giving of our time and our talents and our treasures. The writer of uh, Proverbs sums up so many of the laws that we see here in the book of Deuteronomy with this simple principle, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Blessing. Let me give you an illustration. Years ago when our kids were young, Margie and I, uh, we have three boys and a girl, and the three boys were all in Little League, and we were over here in Rancho Santa Margarita. This is probably 20-some-odd years ago, and watching one of our boys play Little League. And uh, we were sitting in the stands one evening, and my seven, or well, she was probably 11 or 12 years old at the time. Katie said, I want some money. I want to go over and get some candy. And so I think I gave her a couple of bucks, and she went over to the candy uh, snack shack, snack bar, whatever it was, and she came back with a big bag of Skittles. Our kids love Skittles. I love Skittles. And she sat there next to me gobbling up her Skittles. And I looked over and I said, Katie, can I have some Skittles? She said, no. I said, Katie, please, let me have a few Skittles. She said, no, they're mine. Now, three things my daughter didn't understand. First of all, I'm the one that bought her the Skittles. <laughs> Secondly, she didn't realize my strength. I could have taken those Skittles from her forcibly and eaten every one of them myself. Thirdly, you know, she basically didn't understand that, that I could have gone to the snack bar, I could have put my credit card down, bought 300 bags of Skittles and brought her back all these Skittles. She would have had more Skittles to eat in her, in her whole lifetime. We all have Skittles. Some of us have big bags of Skittles. Some of us have medium bags of Skittles. Some of us have a small bag of Skittles. Our loving God comes to us and says, you know what, would you bring me some Skittles? I want some Skittles, some of your Skittles. And we say, no, no, they're, they're mine. I earned them, I deserve them, they're, they're my Skittles. Like my daughter, we don't understand several things. First of all, God is the one who gave us our Skittles. He's the source. Secondly, he could take all of our Skittles away in a moment, in an instant. And thirdly, we don't understand that God could rain down upon our lives more Skittles than we could possibly enjoy in a lifetime. You see, God doesn't really need our Skittles. He wants our hearts. But when he has the one, he has the other. And so when you read through the book of Deuteronomy, you'll notice all these laws, all these requirements for the giving of animal sacrifices and, and produce and tithes and offerings. And understand at the very core of this covenant relationship with God is a heart response. 
God deeply desires people with a heart for God, that we would love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't really need our Skittles. He wants our hearts. But again, when he has the one, he has the other. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 sums it up. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Why? So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. God wants to bless us. Economists uh, Stephen Lee and Paul Webley talk about two metaphors that basically uh, explain the, the role that money has in our, in our lives. Money, they say, is both a tool and a drug. It's a tool because it's useful, right? We need it. Uh, it helps us pay the bills. It keeps the lights on. We, we stay fed. It gets work done. It helps us to buy more Skittles and so on. The problem is, why is it that people who are rolling in money always want to have a little bit more? J. Paul Getty was once asked, how much money is enough money? He said, always a little bit more. Why is that? Why is it that people who have more than enough money will, will sacrifice and damage their reputations, their relationships with family and friends just to get more money? Money is obviously more than just a tool. We've got a huge toolbox here at the church on wheels over in the workroom. It's filled with hammers and screwdrivers and uh, pliers and all kinds of things, but I'll never run the risk of getting emotionally attached or deeply committed to any of those tools. Why? Because they're tools. <laughs> money is a tool, but it's also a drug. There's something about money that makes us feel things that we would otherwise not feel. Money like a drug provides us with kind of an altered state of consciousness. It gives us a temporary escape from the pain. It gives us a momentary illusion of well-being. It gives us a false sense of security. We crave money because we want the buzz that money provides. Maybe that's why the Bible talks so much about the dangers of craving money. It's not, the, it's not money, it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil, the Bible says. Paul warns us in 1 Timothy 6.9, but those who want to get rich fall into the temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Money is a tool. Money is also a drug. Or in the biblical language, uh, money is a servant. Money is also an idol. Are you using money as a tool for the owner who owns it, or are you using it as a drug for yourself? In the biblical language, as Jesus said, are you storing up treasures in heaven or are you storing up treasures here on earth? Money is a great tool, but listen, it is a lethal weapon. How do we get free from using uh, money as a drug? And how do we start using money more and more as a tool? God has actually uh, designed an antidote. It sets people free from the love of money as a drug. And basically, it's called tithing. Tithing comes up time and time and time again in the book of Deuteronomy. Most people today don't really understand what tithing is all about. The word tithe in both the Greek and in the Hebrew simply means tenth. It means to give a tenth of something. Now sometimes people use that word kind of loosely, and uh, they say something like, I tithe ten, $10 a week. Well, I'm not a math major, I'm kind of math challenged, but the only way you could tithe $10 a week is if you make $100 a week. But tithing in the Old Testament, as we see it here in Deuteronomy, it involves giving more than just 10%. You'll see it all through this book. 
And for Israel, tithing was just one part of the whole generous and, and, and joyful experience of worshiping and serving and loving the one true and living God. It was just one part of that. In fact, Israel did not have just one tithe. Israel actually had three tithes, as you saw in the video. The first tithe was called the Lord's tithe. It was the temple tithe, the Levite tithe. Tithe went to support the priests and the ministry in the tabernacle and in the temple. Leviticus uh, 27.30 stipulates that a tenth of everything from the land, all the grain, all the, the fruit, belonged to the Lord, 10%, right off the top. In fact, 10% of all their animals were also required. It was considered to be holy to the Lord, that is, set apart for his use. That's what the word holy means. The prophet Malachi went so far as to say that if a man did not give uh, a tithe, he was disobeying God, he was ripping God off, he was stealing. But it didn't end there. There was a second tithe called the festival tithe. Deuteronomy 12 explained that the, the festival tithe was, was to be used for uh, religious celebration. It was, it was where family and friends came together. Uh, this tithe was for fun. This was a, a tithe that, that taught the people the goodness of God. God says in Deuteronomy 14, 26, You may spend this money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God, and rejoice, you and your household. Now that was a passage I never heard in a Baptist church that I grew up in. I know what some of you are thinking, so if I buy alcohol, does that count as tithing? Um, the short answer is no. <laughs> but God wants people to connect giving and generosity with celebration and joy. Paul later says, let each of you do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. What do I need to do? What do we need to do to connect giving and serving with joy and with celebration? How do we do that? How can we better do that? Let me give you a couple of ideas. You might want to start by walking around our church and look at the children being taught to love Jesus. You know, go see friends meeting friends during the week, investing their lives in one another, mentoring and discipling one another. Watch people learn the Bible and, and apply it to their lives. Go online, check out what our missionaries are doing. Last week it was so encouraging to have uh, Pastor, Pastor Salenga here share a little bit about how he's planting thousands of churches. We're a part of that. And the Tabitha Center, reaching out to the, to the women and teaching them a, a trade. Uh, go online, see what's happening with our sister church in Mexico or, or our, our, our orphanage. Uh, drive by on Wednesday night, see how our, our junior high and high school, how they're getting together. They're bringing their friends. Over half of our youth group are from the community. Unchurched kids coming and being discipled and learning about Jesus. Uh, see how our various uh, mug groups, meetup groups are, are, are meeting during the week and life groups and, and Bible studies and how moms are being mentored uh, on Friday mornings. Uh, and lives are being changed and transformed. And when you see all of that, think to yourself, my giving to God helps make all that happen. There's joy and celebration in that. And so the faithful Israelite had two compulsory 10% tithes. These weren't an option. They had to give them. And so now we're up to 20%. It didn't stop there. <laughs> there was still another tithe called the poor tithe. Deuteronomy 14.28 states that every three years they were to give 10% to the poor. That comes to about 3% a year. Which means that the mandatory tithes that a faithful Israelite gave was about 23, maybe even 25% of their annual income. A tithe for the priesthood, a tithe for the national uh, religious feasts, and also a tithe for the poor. 
Sometimes people wonder, should, should my tithe go to the church? Should it go to uh, nonprofit organizations? You know, there's no formula in the New Testament for that. There's, this is not something to be mechanical. Margie and my practice has always been to give 10% to our church, the church that we're a part of, and we're part of Foothills. And also, above and beyond that, we support uh, personally about six or seven missionaries. We help support them. And that's part of what we do. But uh, there was the... Uh, for the faithful Israelite, it didn't even end there. Uh, there was also the mandatory type of a profit sharing for the poor. Basically, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19, and also Leviticus 19, 9 through 10 says, if, when you reap the harvest of your land, God says, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. In other words, the leftovers. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them to the poor and alien. I am the Lord, your God. Now, this was not a huge chunk of change. Maybe 1% or 2% of what they would make in a year was just left in the field for the, for the poor to come by and glean. But you were to be generous. Uh, leave a, 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 a sheaf out there in the, in the field. If you left it there, just leave it there. What does that look like today? Well, in principle, there's a couple of things I would suggest. Um, let me give you an example. Margie and I, every month or so, uh, every six weeks or so, we'll go down to a place we like in Anaheim uh, called the Peacock Suites. It's part of a timeshare thing. I don't know if you shouldn't have bought the timeshare years ago, but I did. But anyway, we go to this every, every you know, so often just for a time away, romantic weekend or whatever it might be. And there's a, a valet uh, guy there that we've gotten to know over the years by the name of Fo. Fo is from uh, Ethiopia. He's Muslim. He's poor. He takes everything he makes and he sends it back to his family in Ethiopia. And we've built a relationship with him. And every now and then I just leave him a big bill. Uh, just, just leave it for him because I, I, I know he needs it. Every once in a while, just leave somebody who needs it a big tip. Just, just do it. Every once in a while when somebody's standing on a corner and needs money, just give it to them. When you get a, 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 in the mail once in a while a, a letter from World Vision or from the International Justice Mission, just go ahead and send him a check. Every once in a while, when someone, some money comes your way that you didn't expect, maybe a bonus or whatever, give it to somebody. It's called harvest generosity. It's the extra in the field. It, just let the poor have it. Give it to them. And so we all, all in all, a, a faithful Israelite gave between 23 and 25% of his annual income. Now, anytime I talk about tithing, the number one question that usually comes up is, you know, should I tithe on the net or on the gross? And I always say, it depends on, do you want God to bless the net in your life or the gross in your life? An awful lot of us, like Israel, can give far more than 10%. Uh, that's the baseline for a lot of us. That's the, that's the floor, not the ceiling. And so just to be clear, if you're a follower of Christ and you're, and you're not tithing, do it. Start. Your finances might be a mess right now. Hey, Take the time, be wise, be prudent. Start with maybe just obeying God by giving a percent of your giving each time. One percent each time. Israel did this, but tithing was not the only form of generosity. On top of that, they had voluntary free will giving. On top of all of that, this included first fruits giving. An Israelite who truly loved the Lord, in addition to his 23 or 25%, would uh, give the first fruits of his produce to God. The very first. You see, in Israel, they lived day to day. They lived year to year. And so oftentimes, an Israelite farmer would go out into the field waiting for that crop to come up out of the ground. And the very first 
a fruit that came out of the ground, he'd put a little reed around that and say, that belongs to God. That's the very first fruit that comes out of the ground. He said they counted on that crop. They needed it, otherwise they would die. And so the very first that came out of the ground, they would realize, okay, a bumper crop is coming. God's going to bless and this, this whole field is going to be full, but I'm going to give the very first to God. He gave it to me, I'm going to give it back to him. The very first. And they got so excited about first fruit giving that oftentimes they would parade down the street with the very first of their produce and bring it to the temple. They'd bring it to the tabernacle. It was a celebrative, joyful kind of thing. You know, the idea of giving first fruits is one of the best ways to change money from a drug to a tool. The opposite way of handling my money might be uh, what someone called last fruits. What's last fruits? Well, last fruits is when I get my paycheck and I pay for all my bills and my obligations and the spending. Whatever's left at the end of the month, uh, maybe I'll give some of that to God. How much is left? Usually not very much, if anything. That's last fruits giving. Israel said, I'm not going to give God the leftovers. I'm going to give God the, the, the first fruits. Here's what that looks like for us. Uh, I now pay our bills online. Um, I use uh, Quicken because I, I, I can't figure things out on a ledger myself, so I, I have a computer that helps me. And the very first transaction that I make is, is my giving, my tithe. The very first button I push. And when I do that, I stop and I thank God for all the blessings he's given me because I'm giving back a portion of what he's already given to me. I thank him for all I get to give. I thank God. I would encourage you to thank God. Tell him you want him to be first in your financial life. Harvest generosity. God will bless that. In an agricultural economy, harvest time is like payday. <laughs> and for the faithful Israelite, it didn't even stop there. There was also, finally, free will offering. Free will offerings, as you see in Deuteronomy, these are for the special projects. This is when they built the temple or the tabernacle and the people came forward. It wasn't mandatory. It was supposed to come from the heart. The entire emphasis, emphasis on free uh, will giving was a joyous giving over and above that 23 or 25 percent that they already were giving to God. In fact, the ideal in the Old Testament, whether it was mandatory or free will, it was always to be from the heart. It was always to be a joyous, uh, loving expression of worship to God. And so some were giving 30 percent. Some were giving 40 percent. That was huge. But it was all an acknowledgement and worship of God as the source of everything they, they had, ultimately giving God all the glory for everything, all the Skittles. It all belongs to him. God doesn't need our money. He wants our hearts. But when he has the one, he has the other. Now, in the New Testament, the focus is not so much on legal prescription as it is on a focus of us as being stewards or money managers of what God has given to us. In other words, as Christians, we're, to, uh, we're exhorted to acknowledge God with joy and gratitude as servants, as stewards, as managers of what he has given to us. That's why Jesus always points out time and time again throughout his parables that it's always about a heart issue. Where's your heart? My giving reveals my heart. Which is why the most penetrating passage in all the New Testament is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Under severe trial, under severe testing, uh, it talks about the, the, the Corinthian church overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, welling up in rich generosity. It was from their grateful hearts that they sacrificially gave to the Lord as an expression of worship as they submitted themselves to Him. 
Now, the Corinthians might have had a lot of problems, and they did. But evidently, materialism wasn't one of them. But if we were to be honest today, we all struggle at one level or another with that disease of materialism, always wanting just a little bit more. And someone once said that materialism is really the plague of the church in America today. It has ripped off and robbed the faith and joy of so many Christians that have shut up the heavens that want to come down and, and bless them because they, 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 they don't give. Now, how do I lessen the grip of materialism in my heart? Again, I think the, ant the antidote that we find in Scripture to materialism is tithing. Tithing is the only antidote that really uh, it, it basically helps un understand basically where, the, where that, that disease that consumes us and robs us is all about. It robs us of our faith and joy. Why is that? Randy Alcorn suggests five reasons, and I've shared these before. I want to share them again. The act of tithing is a vivid reminder that it's all about God and not about us. Tithing is a joyful surrender to a greater person and to a greater agenda. Uh, tithing affirms Christ's lordship. It dethrones me, it enthrones him, it exalts him. Only tithing defies that spirit of entitlement. It breaks me free from the gravitational hold of money and possessions. And tithing shifts me to a new center of gravity, and that is heaven. So why does the average Christian in America today give less than 2%, studies show? Less than 2%. Why is it that one-third of all Christians across the board, in every denomination, every church, one-third give nothing? Nothing. Randy Alcorn points out, if you believe in just grace-giving, that is, I don't believe in tithing, I'll just give when I feel like it, I'll tip God, I'm not going to tithe. Are you a tither or a tipper? Some people are just tippers. He says, don't you find it ironic that grace-giving is producing one-fourth of the spiritual fruit, basically, of the law? He points out that New Testament grace is not a license that frees us to clutch tighter to material wealth. The bar has been raised, he points out. New Testament believers are called upon to be more sacrificial and more generous than even the Old Testament law. <laughs> so how should I give? The Apostle Paul spells it out in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart. Again, it comes back to the heart. Not grudgingly, not under compulsion, not under guilt. For God loves a cheerful giver. Again, God highly prizes those who give with a deep seed of joy down in our hearts. If ever our faces should light up, if ever our hearts should beat a little bit faster, it ought to be when we give. We give out of joy and celebration for who God is and what he's done for us. That's why we have offering during our worship service. Somebody said, why don't we just have a box in the back and people can throw you know, their, their offerings in there. We could do it that way, and some do, and that's, that's okay. But listen, when we get together, we sing together corporately. We worship together, we pray together, we read God's word together, and we give together. It's a corporate expression of worship. That's why we pass the bag. It's an expression together. I've noticed uh, recently a few people during that time want to be a part of it, so they get their, their iPhone out and get, they go to that app and they, they give right there. They want to give as a part of that expression corporately on Sunday morning when we give. They give right there electronically. We are in the 21st century. But they do it with joy. If you can't do it with joy, don't give. God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. And when he has the one, he has the other. A joy and generosity, they're like Siamese twins. They're like two wings on a plane. They're inseparably linked together. So, so why should I give? So that God's work is glorified. 
In 2 Corinthians 9.11, Paul puts it this way. He says, because what is supplied by your giving results in much thanksgiving to God and proves your confession of the gospel of Christ. And you will be enriched for even more giving. In other words, God gives more so that you give more. My giving not only glorifies God, it says here, but it blesses other people, other lives, and it really proves that I'm a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, let me be honest with you. If a person is not giving, I begin to seriously question whether they're saved. Now, I didn't say that. The Apostle Paul said it. He says, giving proves your confession of the gospel of Christ. Now, why would he say that? Because as Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. The call to discipleship is a call to be a giver. Paul states in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks to be, be to God for His indescribable gift. God has given us the most indescribable gift ever. He's the ultimate giver, the greatest giver in the universe. And so the very least we can do is respond and give back a portion of what He has so graciously given to each and every one of us. Are you a giver or are you a keeper? Are you a giver or a keeper? If you're a giver, God promises blessing, both now and in the future. In Isaiah 55, 2, the Lord declares, Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant with you, according to the faithful mercies shown to David. I want, I want to give joyfully. How do, we, how do we capture that back? How can we bring joy back to, to giving? Let me suggest four things real quickly, four suggestions on how we can get that joy back, that celebration of worship to God. Number one, reflect on God's gifts to you. Reflect on them. Has God been good to you? <laughs> Better than you deserve? Yes. Good health, happy family, Sufficient food, clothing, shelter, close friends, and so much more. God is so good. Reflect on the, on the gifts. Remember that old hymn, Count Your Many Blessings. Name them one by one. Count Your Many Blessings. See what God has done. What has God done in your heart and life? Consider that. Reflect on that. Number two, remind yourself of His promises concerning generosity. All through the Scripture, God promises blessing. We give not to get but God does promise that if you give, He will bless you. He may not bless you with more money. He might bless you in any number of other different ways. But God does promise blessing for those that give. And never forget that as you plant, He promises, and He's in the business of providing bumper crops. Number three, examine your heart. Only you can do this, nobody else can. But open that private vault and ask yourself some hard questions. Is my giving proportionate to my income? Am I motivated by guilt or by joy? I'm not here to give a guilt complex to anybody. I want more joy in all of us. If someone else knew the level of my financial involvement in God's work, would they be encouraged toward generosity? In other words, if they see what you're giving, would they say, wow, I want to be a giver like you. I want to sacrificially give like you do. Have I prayed about giving or am I just an impulsive responder? Am I a tither or am I just a tipper? Number four, trust God to honor consistent generosity. That's a big step. It is so essential. Go for it. Release your restraint. Let go of that 
that grip you might have on your bag of Skittles. <laughs> Reach in, grab a, grab a handful and, and distribute it. Give it away. Develop that habit of generosity. It's doubtful that generosity has ever hurt very many people. <laughs> Let me just add here that at Foothills, we, we deeply appreciate so much uh, your commitment to this ministry. We love serving you, the staff, the ministry leaders, the elders. We love serving you day in and day out. We also know that some of you are, are praying consistently for us and you're giving sacrificially. And believe me, our needs today basically are somewhere between enormous and staggering. And so if you're not already doing so, start tithing today. It's never too late to start doing what's right. God will richly bless you on your journey of faith and trust and joy in Him. Why not aim for 10%? Maybe go for 20, maybe go for 30, depending upon your circumstances. In Israel, every seventh day basically was the Sabbath. Every seventh day, people voluntarily did not work that day. They gave up the income they could be making by just simply honoring and trusting and worshiping God. Every seventh day. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year. They didn't work on that year. They would rest the land. It was a sabbatical. Whatever food they had, they would share it, and they would free all the slaves. Now, slaves back then were more indentured servants. Somebody might get really poor, and they would have to sell themselves into slavery. Not like what we think maybe happened in our country 150 years ago, but they would set their servants, their indentured servants, free. Not only that, and this was unprecedented in the ancient world, they'd also give that servant or that slave money so that they could begin to make their own living. And then every seven Sabbath years, every 49 years would be the year of Jubilee. That was the 50th year. And that's when they would forgive all the debts, set all the slaves free, and then also all the land originally that you owned would come back to you. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe you lost a home one time, maybe back 10 years ago, you, you had to file bankruptcy and you, you lost your home and the year of Jubilee, you'd get it all back. Everything you ever owned goes back to you. Such a deal. People would start filing on the 49th year, right? <laughs> the year of Jubilee was a year of unbelievable generosity. And what's really interesting in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus began his ministry, it says he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee, the year of generosity, the year of celebration. What Jesus was basically saying is, look, in my coming, the, the, the jubilee year, the, the, the best gift of all has been given because the greatest giver in the universe, God, has given us all that we will ever need. He has given us Jesus, the very best. He's referred to as the first fruits, the very best that God could give us. He gave to die on a, on a cross for our sin and to redeem us. How could we ever do anything less than just give back to him from our resources, the blessings that he's poured out in our own hearts and lives? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty, through his poverty, might become rich. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you so much for all that you've done. Lord, we will forever be worshiping and praising you for who you are and for the wonderful, gracious, abundant things that you have given to us and provided for us, both now and in eternity. Father, I pray that you would help us to have generous hearts. Help us to let go of that grip that we have on our stuff. <laughs> help us to, to walk through life with the things that you've given us in an open hand that you could take 
that others might receive. Help us, Father, to be generous, to be overwhelmingly, uh, abundantly generous with all that you have given to us. Help us to be found faithful. Father, we want to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, to be all that you've called us to be. And so, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your Holy Spirit that abides within us, that you've given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through Jesus Christ our Lord. And for that, Father, we are forever grateful. So help us, beginning today, uh, this week, in our workplace, with our family, friends, in our neighborhood, wherever we are, to live generous lives, to be givers above and beyond what would be expected. We thank you and praise you, God, that you are the greatest giver in the universe and what you've done for each and every one of us. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray and all God's children said, amen.